I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? But since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, I think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Great, thanks, Sam. Uh, do keep that passage open, and uh, we're going to be looking through it. Let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that uh, as we go, continue to go through this book of 1 Corinthians, we would continue to see and put Jesus first in our lives, in our churches, in our relationships, in all aspects. We pray that you would glorify your name and exalt him before us. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Uh, well, I wonder if you've ever put any kind of real thought into why it is so hard or embarrassing to talk about Jesus to others sometimes. Uh, I won't have the right words to say if I, if I start that conversation about the gospel, or I'm just not very eloquent at, at the best of times, let alone trying to talk about my faith. How will I answer their questions? How will I persuade them uh, that Jesus is who he says it is? How is it going to sound to them when I try to explain that the God creator of the entire universe 
came down to earth to become a, a man, a human, just like us. And then not only that died a criminal's death at the hands of the government and the people. But why did he have to die to save us? Couldn't he have just uh, found a sort of more impressive worldly way uh, to do that? I have to tell them that they, like us, are sort of weak and, and sinful and evil before God, and they need to be humble and repent. It's not a very impressive message, is it, when we think about it in those terms? And we're not exactly given superpowers to prevent the message either. We might, our message might, seem powerless and unimpressive. Even if, for those of us who do believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus and that he died for our forgiveness of our sins, even if, for us, it is massively impressive and massively powerful in our lives, why does it have to appear weak and unimpressive to the world? Well, the city uh, of Corinth, like us today, uh, they liked power and the dramatic and the wise leaders and speakers of the time. Uh, Greek rhetoric was the name of the game that persuaded the hearers uh, of what they wanted to persuade, whether that's their politicians or their company CEOs or social media influencers. They had eloquence and power, uh, as they often do today. They're out to impress and to sort of draw a following to their way of thinking. I mean, we only need to look at the constant desire for people to build a social media platform to build up their fan base, to get the most followers they can get, to see that it's a very similar situation today. And we all love those things, don't we? We love the cool. We love the impressive people. And kind of by association, by you know, who you follow and what you like and what other people see of you, you look a bit impressive as well, don't you? The way we associate to those impressive things makes us look good. And that kind of cultural desire to follow the impressive, uh, to be considered impressive, has infiltrated the church in Corinth, says Paul. And that's what he addresses this week. So uh, three points, they're not impressive points. Uh, they're all quite long and worthy. Uh, the first one is don't follow impressiveness in the church. Have a look at verse 10, the first uh, verse we're looking at today. Paul says this, verse 10 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. What are they divided about? What are they, what should they be united? Sorry, what are they not united about? Verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that are, there are quarrels among you. So what's all this disunity that they're quarreling about? Verse 12, what I mean is this, he says. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Now, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and obviously Christ are all well-known New Testament uh, characters of the time. They are teachers. And if you find them in the rest of the New Testament, they're all sound teachers. They teach the gospel. They, see, they teach sound doctrine. Cephas is another name for Peter the Apostle. And so this disunity and these quarrels that are arising within this church are not about false doctrines or false teachers. 
as they often are in some of the other letters that Paul writes. These are, on the whole, we trust, sound, godly, faithful gospel teachers. And yet the people are causing divisions and quarrels by the nature of how they are treating those preachers and leaders. They are, if you like, putting those leaders on pedal stools and quarreling about well, who's the best. Well, my one's the best. No, I think mine's the best because he said this and he does it like this. See, the culture of that city uh, that looks to impressive speakers and leaders has brought that same temptation into the church and they're looking to the impressive, the wise, the rhetoric, the eloquence of the preachers rather than what is being preached. And it's ending in quarrels, says Paul. It's actually a problem that's fairly rife amongst uh, the church today, uh, with the internet giving us so much access to sermons and videos and blogs and Twitter feeds from pretty much every other preacher across the entire planet. The choice set before us is mind-boggling. And why wouldn't you listen to any of them, as well as, hopefully, the people here at Grace Church? But you see, listening is not the issue, is it? Paul would have been pleased for those people to listen to Apollos and Cephas and the teachings of Christ. As I'd be pleased if you're listening to faithful gospel teachers from around the world. The issue is when we raise up those preachers and we start following them, if you like. Oh, I follow Tim Keller. Did you hear how he persuaded us to behave like this at work. It was so powerful. No, 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 I follow John Piper. Uh, at least he's got passion and heartfelt power in his voice when he gets all emotional and dramatic. I follow John Stott and Jonathan Edwards. Their words are so well eloquent and, and old-fashioned. Yes, God's true language. Well, first off, why are they all called John? And you know why they sound <laughs> old and eloquent. It's because they're dead. You see, it's easy to get sidetracked from the message to the messenger. They're all good preachers. They're, they're all really good to listen to. I don't want to discourage you from doing that at all, but they are all terrible preachers to follow, as am I, as is any preacher who stands before you and teaches you. All good to listen to. They're teaching the truth of the gospel, but all terrible to follow because it leads to quarreling and, and divisions and a distraction. No, says Paul, verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? What about Tim Keller or Sam Williamson, I hope not? Were you baptized in the name of Adam Jakes? No is the obvious answer. It doesn't matter who baptized you, it doesn't matter who impressed you the most in a sermon, it doesn't matter who brought you to faith by the preaching of the gospel. What matters is who was crucified for you. It's quite an extraordinary statement that, that cuts through division, doesn't it? Cuts through disunity and factions and pride and impressiveness or our desire to follow the impressive. Christ Jesus died for you. And that's all a faithful preacher wants you to know and to be totally united upon. So concerned is Paul about this kind of inbuilt desire that we all have to seek and follow the impressive. 
and the risk that that runs of distracting from the message, he says he actually deliberately avoids using these worldly impressive techniques, this rhetoric and these wise words and these persuasions and these eloquence, uh, these eloquent words to preach, he says. Have a look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, uh, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Uh, Paul was a powerful Jewish leader before meeting Jesus and being saved. He would whip up crowds to attack Christians. He would convince councils to sentence Christians to death. He, could, he led a campaign against Christianity. He could be impressive. He could be wise. He could be persuasive. He could be eloquent. But he chose not to use any of that. To, uh, he, he kind of almost considers it in a veil of what he's truly trying to communicate. And that is convincing people of their need for Jesus. What good has Paul achieved uh, if he attracts a follower of his own who delights in his wise words and the brilliant way he speaks, but who never responds in repentance to the message of Christ crucified on the cross? A very unimpressive cross, might I add, as Paul does. It will be emptied of its power if Paul heralds such a message only to attract and keep people who follow him. His impressiveness and his wise speeches and his eloquence. And it's a reminder and a warning to me and to all preachers and teachers to elevate Jesus in simple explanations of the Bible, not drawing attention to myself, but drawing attention only to Christ. And so we can apply that all the way across, can't we? We don't want to draw crowds. Uh, through impressive music. It was very good today, John, sorry, nothing personal. Uh, we don't want uh, amazing singing times and eloquent debates and fancy lights and rock concert style services where people flock to us for the excitement and the, the performance and the, no, people will be impressed in a worldly way. But the cross of Christ will be emptied of, a, of its power. That's the only reason people come to us. Don't follow impressiveness in the church, says Paul. Be united, undivided by the crucified Christ. Uh, this isn't a call to kind of shoddy services and unprepared sermons. So my apologies when that does happen. Uh, this is a call to avoid the worldly trappings of impressiveness at the expense of not elevating Jesus. Uh, it somewhat raises a question, though, doesn't it? As, as we think through all of that, why did God design a gospel that was deliberately unimpressive to the world? Why did he do that? So much so that Paul says, if I use all my eloquence and wisdom, I'm kind of going to outshine Jesus's message. I'm going to empty the cross of its power. I mean, not literally, but I'm going to outshine that message. Why did God do it that way? The cross of Christ, God's chosen instrument to save the world, was not seemingly full of wisdom and eloquence as far as the world considers it. That's our second question uh, point. It is a question. Why does the gospel appear 
unimpressive. I mean, have a look at verse 18. Paul doesn't shy away from making this point. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The very message they need to be saved appears to be foolish. The gospel seems ridiculous to those who don't believe. The all-powerful God, giving up the glory of heaven to become a human like you and me. He lives a, a sinless life, you say. Well, you know, bully for him. But then he's sentenced to death. No one at that time believed his story. The people wanted him dead. What a loser. And he dies a criminal's death. Uh, these days, we kind of soften the image of the cross, don't we? We, we wear it on a chain around our necks or we uh, have beautiful stained glass windows. Uh, those things are good, by the way. There's no issue with those. The, 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 the issue is at the time, if you think about what the cross was, it was far more like the electric chair or the lethal injection. It was an embarrassment. It was a mockery of the person being put to death by the government and by the will of the people. We don't exalt and follow many death row leaders today, do we? They don't really impress us. It'd be a bit embarrassing. How unimpressive. It's foolishness when you think about it. Verse 22 and 23, uh, Paul goes on, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we don't offer them those. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. All God had to do was impress with great power, reveal himself. And the Jews would have believed him. All he had to do for the Greeks was impress them with powerful and wise and eloquent words. And they would have believed in him. That's all they want. Where is your wisdom, God? You've got a weak and a foolish gospel. Un not powerful, unimpressive. We're kind of back to that nervousness that we have, don't we, when we speak of Jesus to our friends or to our colleagues in the playground. When we try to work out how we sell this Jesus crucified on a cross, put to death, put on the electric chair. It's just a little weak, a little bit unimpressive. Why does the gospel appear so unimpressive? Well, verse 26 to 29, let me read those to you. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Literally, us now, let's think of what we were before we were called. Or if we'd grown up knowing Jesus, what we would have been without him. Think of that. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Try not to look at anyone in particular. <laughs> not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to do what? Shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify, to make nothing the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Isn't that extraordinary? Think about your background. Think about your life without Jesus, Paul says. Look around this room. None of us are very impressive or influential. One or two might be, but on the whole, 
God's message and his people of weakness is a deliberately designed plot by God to shame the world that is so proud and arrogant. God's message and his weak people is deliberately designed to shame the world that thinks it is so proud, so powerful, and so arrogant. And I mean, just imagine if we had at our disposal the most powerful, impressive, life-changing, irresistible message to the ears of the world. I'm not saying we don't have that message. I'm saying if we had that message with, so that the world looked at it and thought, wow, that's amazing. How proud we would become if it all relied on us and how well we put it across and how powerful our miracles were or it would all be about us very quickly. But no, only God will receive the glory for those who respond to this message of Christ crucified. Verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, because of God. Not because someone brilliantly displayed the gospel to you in such powerful and eloquent words. No, it is because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our message seems unimpressive. Our Lord's crucifixion seems weak. But it is only to further demonstrate how sinful our world is in its understanding of power and wisdom. So that God alone may be glorified when just one or 10,000 are saved. We may only boast in God who saved us through this foolish message. Verse 25. Uh, kind of ties all these thoughts together, I think, verse 25. For the foolishness of God, as if there is such a thing, uh, is wiser than human wisdom. In that impressiveness of our world that we love so much, even the foolishness of God is wiser than that. And the weakness of God, as if there is such a thing, is stronger than any human strength. God will not allow the impressiveness of this world to have any part in his plan for saving his people. It is for his glory alone through his weak people. In reality, God's foolishness, as if there was any such thing, is wiser than any human words. The ironic and apparent weakness of God, Christ crucified on the cross, if you want an example of his apparent weakness and power, is actually the most powerful work of God available to all of mankind. Don't be embarrassed about how the gospel sounds. It's not about us and what we look like and how we come across. Simply tell the simple truth of Christ crucified. The proud and the, and the impressive will reject it. And ultimately, they will be shamed by God himself. That's not our job. The weak and the humble, there will be some who will be shown mercy and grace at the will of God, and all glory will go to Him alone. Uh, but I want to end uh, with our third point. Impressive Jesus reverses it all. I want to clarify what we're saying 
I don't want us as Christians to go off thinking that the gospel of Christ is unimpressive, weak and foolish, uh, but we should share it anyway and see what happens. No, that's not the point, and it's not true. It is the most powerful, impressive, life-changing, irresistible message. For the very reason that the message is Christ crucified, demonstrates that. If you like, the gospel is like a two-sided coin depending on who's looking at it and depending on who is using it. So have a look at verse 18. So here's one side of the coin. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but flip the coin over. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the power of God. Or verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, so God's designed it all, but the world in all its impressive wisdom did not know him. The world's wisdom in all its apparent impressiveness can't find God. Carrying on in that verse, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. That's impressive, isn't it? Impressive in a godly way. Or verse 30, it is because of him, God, wise and eloquent preachers with worldly impressive messages know it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness holiness and redemption do you see the foolish and impressive non-worldly wise message of Christ crucified is actually the astonishing wisdom and power of God himself brought about to bring him glory alone and none of us and no one else outside of this room or any church it's brought about to humble humanity to bring us to him in repentance to point out the pride and the 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 shame of those who ignore god nonetheless and to achieve in christ for us our righteousness our holiness our redemption so don't feel we need wise words or powerful arguments or smack down phrases when we talk about jesus We could be more like Paul, who summarises what he's trying to do in the first few verses of chapter 2, which is why we've included them today. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 2, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing. Let's keep it simple, he says. While I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified i came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling worldly wisdoms persuasive arguments impressive buildings rock concert style music posh english accents clever catchphrases awesome social media presence the smartest sermon illustration it all sounds really impressive it's not what god requires of me or you or anyone else who follows him we're to go out in weakness but we are weak. We rely fully on God. We go out in great fear and trembling, for we carry this precious message in our weak bodies. Our bodies full of temptation to be powerful and impressive and proud. We're, we're fearful, for we don't want to dishonor our Lord and our Savior as we spread his message to the lost. So we simply preach Christ crucified. Verse 4, 
My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with, the dem with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We don't need clever words or persuasions. We simply present the good news of Christ crucified and leave the Spirit of God to demonstrate his power as he changes lives, as he saves people from being lost to being saved. Uh, the power here is not of miraculous demonstrations of signs and wonders from the, the Spirit. That would be to rather undermine what Paul is arguing for in this whole passage. Here, the gospel, as the Spirit changes hearts, is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So it's not through human wisdom. It is through God's work alone, the power of God by a spirit, as he's already said in verse 17 and 18 and 24, and in this verse, is the extraordinary power of God saving people through this apparently foolish message. The gospel may seem foolish and weak, but the power of God is seen as he shames the strong and the powerful, as he saves the weak through this gospel, through an unimpressive death on a cross, for a life that glorifies and boasts in the Lord Jesus alone. Verse 25 again to finish. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, forgive us for when we have sought impressive, powerful, eloquent, persuasive leaders or tried to be them ourselves, or tried to gain status through our association with them. Forgive us, for we know Christ crucified is all we need. In him, through your spirit, is a demonstration of your power that changes hearts, that leads to only your glory. May we be encouraged this day to go out to speak to our friends at work at school in the streets our neighbors our family who don't know you not with impressive powerful eloquent words or power but with the simple truth of christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins and may we trust in you may we pray to you may we know we are weak and come to you in fear and trembling as we spread this message for your glory alone. And may you grow your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.